0: Hi I'm Sabrina and he's Marcus
1: and we are two of the founders of the Black Trail Runners you can find us on Instagram at the black trail runners
0: we're a community and campaigning group seeking to increase inclusion participation and representation of black people in trail running
2: if something resonates with you please let us know and share online
0: also leave your review on the podcast platform that you selected as it helps our podcast grow your support helps to make this podcast possible
1: thank you for downloading this episode now let's head to the conversation
0: The Checkpoint is supported by the North Face, whose fundamental mission remains unchanged since 1966, to provide the best gear for their athletes and the modern-day explorer, support the preservation of the outdoors, and inspire a global movement of exploration.
1: Rene McGregor is a leading sports dietitian with over 20 years experience, specialising in red S, athletic health and performance, eating disorders and female athlete nutrition. She is a keen trail runner and the diet lead for the Ultra X Ultra Marathon events and has experience working in clinical and performance nutrition, including with the Olympics, Paralympics and Commonwealth Games teams. Rini is a co-founder of Train Brave, a campaign raising the awareness of eating disorders in sport and dance, and is author, author of the Training Food, Fast Fuel Books and Orthorexia, When Healthy Eating Goes Bad. Rini is also an ambassador for the charity Mind. Rini, welcome to The Checkpoint. And if I said anything that wasn't correct, please feel free to correct me.
2: No, no, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Um, it's so lovely to be here. I'm a big fan of the Black Trail Runners. So. Always nice to be on
1: something that you're a big fan of. Ah, <laughs> oh, thank you. But well, we're 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 a big fan of you. Um, I, we were actually we were supposed to be um, on this podcast with um, another Black Trail runner, um, Simba, who I believe you guys shared some miles together at a recent Ultra X event. Is that right? We did, yeah, we did. And um, he was really good because I'd done
2: a talk to the group that did the Ramsey round um, a few weeks previously, and I sort of said, look, you know. Mm-hmm always make sure with your nutrition on race day that it's things you've practiced and, and don't don't try anything new and there I was like going, do you want a peanut m&m and he was like yeah, <laughs> not, because you told me not to try something new and it was so funny having my own advice given back to me so uh but yeah we did share some miles um on the yeah ultra x uh, spring trail series we did both do the 50k so yeah it was a it was a tough one oh, nice awesome.
1: yeah yeah a lot of a lot of climbing if if memory serves was it was it was it quite a lot of elevation it was a lot of mud (laughs) um (laughs) it was kind of the, the it was like the day after that
2: really bad storm and um i mean i i'd kind of been a bit more planned and thought right i'm actually gonna wear mud claws today not just my usual kind of trail talon type shoes but Um, But I was Mm. not prepared for, yeah, the kind of really steep finish that was about 4K of mud uphill, um, which threw a little bit. But
1: but finished with a smile, so it's all good. All good. You got got your finished line smiling photo. That's what it's all about. Yeah, exactly. I mean, who
2: doesn't finish with a smile, right? Because you're
1: so relieved that you get over that line, surely.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a smile smile because you're done, isn't it? Yeah, I'm done. Yeah, yeah, I get to stop now. (laughs) So we've got a few kind of little fun questions before we get into the um, meat of the interview. Um, And it's kind of sort of quick fire, the first couple. So the first question is, what is your one non-negotiable daily habit? Probably running. (laughs) Oh, okay. That's a good good answer. Good answer for a running (laughs) podcast. Very on brand. Very on brand. Um, Can you give us one of your bucket list races, something that you've always wanted to do? Yeah. And
2: it's annoying because I was due to do it, but um, it keeps getting postponed, but it's Mustang, Mustang trail race in the, in the Himalayas.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. So tell me, tell me a bit about that. I don't know anything about that one. So, um, so
2: Basically, it's um, a, an eight-day, eight-stage day well, 8, day, yeah, eight stage race, um, and you cover, I think it's 250K, um, and you go up to nearly 5,000 meters of elevation. Um, and oh, you, wow. It's, it's kind of on the Nepali side of Tibet, so, or the Tibetan side of Nepali, Nepal, if you want to call it that. And it just looks phenomenal. Mm. I've done the sister race, um, which is the Manaslu Trail race twice. Um, Which basically circumnavigates um, Manaslu, and I just I, I can't I can never do it justice. It is just the most phenomenal experience, and the mountains are just something else. And they give you so much strength and so much. Yeah, I don't know. Just I learn something every time I go to Nepal, and so it's been on the it's been on the list for the last two years. But sadly, due to the pandemic. It has not been possible, mm. so I'm going to keep it on my bucket list because I definitely it's the one that I definitely really need to do. Um, so yeah, hopefully soon. Fingers crossed.
1: And how? How obviously I know it's been postponed, but how have you been kind of training for it? Because obviously that's a lot of altitude, and I'm assuming you don't live at altitude.
2: Sadly, not. I mean, normally when I when I train <laughs> for um, races at altitude, I actually do tend to go out to places like Chamonix um, and spend a good chunk of time out there so before Manuslu which I did in 2018 the second time I spent a month out in Trionght. Um, so I'd kind of oh, acclimatized great. from that point of view but before I did Manuslu the first time around which was in 2013 I actually did do quite a lot of work in the altitude chamber so I went to Bath Uni and used their altitude chamber mm-hmm. so I guess there's that's I suppose that's one aspect I guess the other thing is that and it's a really interesting concept, the whole altitude training thing. I do believe that, I think I've read the research, that some people are just, they have a gene that helps them to adapt. And I think I probably am quite lucky from that point of view because I've never been affected. Mm. And um, I, don't, I think it's really hard to really train to acclimatise to something as high as that because you never really know what's going to happen. But also just being very aware of the the potential and factors that can cause altitude sickness so being dehydrated having low blood sugar levels these mm-hmm. all contribute to it. i'm not saying that they they prevent you if you you know but they do contribute so kind of keeping on top of that has was always kind of the back of my mind so yeah i mean they are they are tough races and then in terms of kind of preparing for the terrain i mean there's nothing that's going to prepare you for the terrain of the nepalese mountains nothing
1: um yeah even the, the trails unless, unless three, you go to the Nepalese mountains
2: exactly because even the trails of Chamonix they're way too groomed like they're just they're really easy to you know they're really easy to run from that point of view um I suppose actually yeah. probably Brecon is one of is probably the closest in terms of it's not as high but the terrain and the lumpiness and the
1: boulders are probably the most um the closest to it yeah. So as we mentioned in the intro, one of your areas of focus is RED-S. And I guess, first of all, for those who may not know, can you maybe explain what RED-S is? And then secondly, kind of how you came to specialize in that area and, and what, what drew you to that aspect of um, dietetics?
2: OK. So, yeah, RED-S stands for Relative Energy Deficiency syndrome. And basically, what it is, is when there is not sufficient energy being put into the system, system being the body, for the work that the body needs to do. And when we talk about wor- work, we're talking about training, but we're also talking about biological function. So fundamentally, what happens is that if you underfuel for the work you're trying to get your body to do, the body will always prioritize movement. But while it prioritizes movement, and if there's not enough energy left over then to do biological processes, what will happen is one by one, they'll start to potentially shut down. So a bit like your iPhone, when it's on low battery mode, it will start to to kind of become affected. And so that affects every single area of your body, from your hormones to your thyroid function, to your uh, your, uh, your gastric system, your digestive system, your um, uh cardiovascular system your immune system like everything your your, your bone health everything can get affected so potentially if it's left too long it can start having real dire consequences and and it's a really interesting area to work in and and the, the reason i went into it was i suppose to a certain degree i fell into it more than i went into it in the sense that um mm-hmm. the i suppose like when i was working in sports nutrition my, my role prior to sports nutrition had always been clinical nutrition. and It had been eating disorders. So mm-hmm. what I was finding was there were real overlaps in this like energy deficiency and eating disorders. Because at the end of the day, it's a low energy availability, um, but it was happening in athletes. And obviously, athletes tend to be a certain type of personality, which actually puts them at a higher susceptibility of developing dysfunctional relationships with food and and training ironically but that's but that's the case and i started to notice that the pressure particularly that these athletes were being put under was then i suppose resulting in them looking for ways of trying to cope with the pressure and mm-hmm. the narrative that there was kind of the internal dialogue that was going on for them and you know, we do also live in a society where we're constantly being told to move more and eat less and this kind of lighter makes you faster message. And so, it you know, what it starts is these behaviours that then potentially lead to physical and mental consequences. And I think I, I was able to put it all together, if that makes sense. So REDS wasn't recognised before 2016. Um, it used to be called the female athlete triad in the sense that people knew that, you know, when you had a female athlete in low energy availability, it affected her menstrual function, which then had a negative consequence on her bone health. And this was very, very well established. But in 2016, the IOC, so the International Olympic Committee, um, the group of them started to notice that, well, this is not just... Women, this is affecting males as well, and it's not just affecting bone health, it's mm-hmm. actually affecting every single function. But if I'm honest, I probably picked up on a lot of that beforehand because of my knowledge in eating disorders. I'd seen all the links, and so I was already supporting athletes who had reds. I didn't really know it was called reds at the time, but I was already supporting athletes with it because I remember writing a blog called um, The Male um, Diode because I was like, I don't know, how, it's not a triode triad but it but I didn't know what (laughs) else to call it so so you know I remember writing that just before and and so I guess I suppose fundamentally my philosophy of practice is always health before performance because if you have your health you can have your performance and also most people who will know me will know that my philosophy of practice also involves calling out all the bullshit because there is so much rubbish out there and there is so much miss messaging and poor Advice. Um, And it really frustrates me. I mean, you know, I've just been actually um, in a meeting with um, the government department who are starting, who are basically writing the legislation around online harm and how can we prevent online Mm -hmm. harm. This is how much it means to me that I get so frustrated and angry with the poor information that's put out there. So I feel like I've become that voice of protection for athletes to a certain degree. And, um, you know, I do find it a very challenging environment to work in because there are two types of reds as well, which I think is important to point out. There's involuntary reds and there's voluntary reds. So involuntary reds is very much the athlete just has no clue about how much nutrition they need. And they still present potentially with the same sorts of symptoms in that maybe their hormonal system has gone a bit wacky, maybe they've got recurrent injuries, maybe their performance is stagnating. So they present with the same sorts of problems, but they're very easy to work with because they're not psychologically affected. So with these individuals, you can provide them with interventions, support, and you know, over a period of say months, weeks, months, they will be back on track and, and there'll be no issues or, or problems. Whereas you then have voluntary reds, which is much more of a conscious decision to control your intake or to train and not rest as much. So it's much more dysfunctional in terms of the psychological aspect of it. So that's quite a challenging area. And I think the reason why I'm I suppose the reason why I get good outcome is because I have got that background in eating disorders in the sense that I understand why people develop that way of um, why they develop those behaviors potentially and then you can start to work with them um, around what's going on for them psychologically as well as physically
1: that's really that's really really interesting and thank you for all of that information um i just want to go back to something that you said talking about the involuntary versus the voluntary reds do you find that the let me get this the right way around the involuntary reds is more prevalent in kind of your amateurs, your um, kind of weekend warriors. And the, the uh, voluntary reds is more prevalent in elite athletes because they, you know, our idea, I guess of an elite athlete is that, you know, they know what they're doing they know what they're putting in their body. They've got coaches around them and people telling them what they should and shouldn't be doing. So yeah. Is that, is that a correct way of thinking about it or is that completely off base? It's actually the complete opposite, if I'm honest. So (sighs) The amateur athletes,
2: generally speaking, will probably actually have more voluntary reds because of the whole, I think, the societal pressures and the aspirations to to be better all the time. And they'll look to the Mm -hmm. elite athletes and look at what they're doing and look at their physiques and look at their training and go, well, that's what I need to do without really understanding that elite athletes do have a full team around them that look after them that tell them when they need to rest that tell them when they they need to consume more food that that look at their bloods all the time you know so actually it is it does happen in the elite world because that's where I first picked it up it does Mm -hmm. happen but I would say based on the last five years um I've definitely seen it more prevalent in um amateur athletes, recreational athletes, people like myself, I think, you know, in the sense of kind of you're competitive enough, but you're never going to be professional, you know, that those individuals, because I think you're also generally, again, that same type of personality. And, And I would put myself in that category of personality in terms of perfectionism, driven, motivated, critical, compulsive, you know, you're that kind, that's your, that's your personality. So genetically you're predisposed to Potentially developing these dysfunctional behaviors if you're put in the right environment. And, you know, like I said, if you're, if you're, if we think about society as it is at the moment, there is so much pressure to achieve. There is so much pressure to be successful. There is so much pressure to prove your worth all the time. And even those individuals that come from really grounded backgrounds now, we're seeing that they also tend to. See have this slight sense of unworthiness that is then potentially the 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 kind of cause of why you then try and find ways to make yourself feel better you know if you have this sense of unworthiness then you're going to look for methods of attaining that worth externally because you can't get it from within yourself so they may fixate on a body sure. image, or they may fixate on a sporting achievement for example
1: So this is probably a stupid question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, Is reds classed as an eating disorder? It's a really good question. Yeah, I think it's a really good question.
2: Personally, I think it should be. Um, But at the moment, no, it's not. But we do have what we call in sport, we have red cat, which is the red category. So how you would categorize somebody. So when somebody comes in, we have certain criteria that we mark them against and then decide what their... um, their path should be in terms of recovery and and modification of training and, and um, interventions. And there is, you know, there is a, an absolute red category that is an eating disorder within sport, but people still see that as something like restrictive eating behaviors like anorexia and being underweight. And I think that's quite dangerous because actually when you have reds, even if you have voluntary reds, you don't always necessarily lose weight because as we said at the beginning, the body will prioritize movement and it will start to preserve energy. So actually your metabolic rate down regulates and you don't always lose weight, which is again, very frustrating for the individual because they're like, well, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing, but I'm still not getting the results I'm looking for. And so they further cut their intake. And again, all that does is is make the body pull back even further. So actually what you find in reds is that you don't have very good body compositions you actually have higher body compositions than you would expect for that that physique because the you know basically the body's holding on to fat because it's 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 trying to preserve energy um so yeah it's i personally think voluntary reds particularly should be categorized as an eating disorder because it very much is a conscious decision to Mm -hmm. to have a dysfunctional relationship with food to a certain degree or use fooding as a coping mechanism shall we say um I think involuntary reds is different I really do think that that's very accidental you just don't realize but because you can usually pick it up quite quickly and you make the change quickly it's not as detrimental longer term so um sure yeah so I think there is that slight um differentiation between the two
1: it's it's interesting because i feel like i've heard more about reds i mean probably in the past year or so but so few athletes and i guess there's a lot there's a lot of reasons why they may not want to um come out so few athletes pro athletes or even you know amateur athletes are willing to talk about it Mm. um and i think i mean partly probably because there's a real you know, there's potentially a stigma around it, or it's, you know, they see it as a sign of weakness or, you know, all these things that I'm sure go through their minds. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I've, I've heard about it more from a kind of, as you say, a kind of a clinical perspective, but not so much from an individual's, this has been my experience and this is how I've kind of overcome it. Um, and yeah, no, it, it would just be great to 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 see more of that and see people kind of being willing to be a bit more vulnerable about it. Because as you say, I think there's so much that we see. Of You know, you see these elite sports people and you think, I need to do that. And if, you know, if I want to, you know, get my fastest 5K or I want to, you know, run a 50 mile or whatever, I need to look this way. Um, yeah. And it, yeah, I think it would be helpful to know that, you know, even those people don't look that way 12 months of the year. And I think that's that's
2: it, isn't it? This is the problem again with with the kind of, The vision, the visualization that we have with social media in particular, the images that are portrayed constantly is that you only, you know, people only select what they want the rest of the world to see. So, you know, athletes will probably only post when they're in their best physical shape and so that's why we assume that they're like that all the time but when you've worked with athletes believe me they have big off seasons and we encourage them to actually you know restore a bit more energy restore a little bit of weight ready for them to come back into another hard block of training because that's how you help them to regulate hormones and and you know repair uh, any any sort of damage from the from the season so I think it is definitely a problem. And I I think the other thing that I'm noticing and hearing quite a lot is particularly in junior level um, sports, that when athletes have spoken out or have mentioned to a coach they've got problems, they're often discarded. And I think that's really, really poor practice. And, And the reason they're discarded is because the coach or the organization maybe doesn't want to have the hassle of dealing with it. I mean, I've had athletes that have come to me because, you know, their GB talent junior pathway has said, we can't help you. um, And you need to go and get yourself sorted if you want to ever be considered to come back on. And, you know, that's really brutal because these kids are like between the ages of 18 and 16 and 20. And that is brutal. But the reason why it's so brutal is because it's, to a certain degree, this sounds really harsh, but to a certain degree, athletes are a commodity. There are so many people wanting to be an athlete because of the celebrity status that we put on it and the kind of the mm. the the kind of you know the, the popularity and the success and the achievement that we put on it, that there's loads of people trying to do it. So from a coach's perspective, from an organization's perspective, well, actually, if we lose that one, we've got another five that we can choose from. And it's harsh and brutal, but that is the reality of sport. And I think I think it's really important to really explain that because it's what I've seen, you know, over the last 10 years, working and being in sport is not, it's not what it's always portrayed to be. It is brutal and it can be toxic. And I do think that particularly youngsters coming into it, whether it's from a practitioner level or whether it's from a, from an athletic point of view, you have to have really thick skin. You have to have a really good, support system and you have to be able to manage your expectation because you're not going to be good all the time you're not going to get praise all mm-hmm. the time and it's being able to handle that that then potentially puts you in good stead to 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 have that longevity and I feel like that's what we don't we don't teach we don't we don't you know like been having a lot of conversations recently just generally about eating disorders not even about reds but just generally about eating disorders and how You know, actually, if we were to teach children in schools about life lessons, so how to have a relationship, how to communicate in a relationship, how to manage money, how to understand your thoughts and feelings, like if we were to have these, this education, maybe, just maybe, we would be able to reduce some of the mental health issues that we have in this country, because a lot of it comes from the fact that, you know, when you're particularly in that kind of adolescent teenage phase, when your your brain is still developing, your hormones are going nuts, like everything feels intense, doesn't it? Everything feels crazy and full on. Everything's hard. And, you know, we've all gone, I've got to hate my life when we're a teenager, because that's how it genuinely feels. And it's really unfair. And, and I think like, if we could help those individuals to appreciate that yeah you will have crazy thoughts but that doesn't mean that they're factual you know you will have difficult conversations and conflict shouldn't be avoided like learning to be able to manage conflict and have those difficult conversations means that you also have your own self-worth because you're able to have something have a conversation that means that you're 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 you feel worthy of that That this is what I need for me So you learn to have these difficult conversations and you understand that actually, you know, you're worthy of asking for what you need because you're having these difficult conversations. If we could teach that to to youngsters, potentially we would stop so many of the the uncomfortable feelings and situations that they go through that they then want to try and control and contain and and, and disappear from. Because that's what causes, that's the mental health, isn't it, is the denial of these uncomfortable scenarios but we have to teach that. We can't just expect them to to get it.
1: Completely. I think, yeah, I think you've really hit the nail on the head there. And I mean, mental health is such a huge issue, but I think, I think a lot of the time when people think about eating disorders or, you know, reds or anything within kind of that bracket, I think a lot of the thinking is that it's about something physical, always about something physical. Um, and I, I'm not. I, I'm not. Too, you know more about this than I do. But oftentimes it is very much something that's you know emotional, or it's something that you can control because you feel like everything else is out of control in your life, or you know, it, it's it, it's often an internal driver mm. rather than a, an external one.
2: Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, an eating disorder it's a behaviour, right? It's it, and like all human behaviour has a purpose and an intention, and usually. Actually, that purpose and intention is a positive one in that it's trying to protect you from something, something that is uncomfortable and difficult for you. It's just unfortunate that sometimes the behavior is inappropriate or harmful to you at the same time. And and I think if you can understand that, and that's something I try and teach people I work with, is that, you know, there's nothing wrong with what you're doing. There is so much shame and stigma attached to having eating issues And or overtraining issues or whatever, but actually there's nothing wrong with it if you put it into perspective and help people to understand, well, it's just human behavior. You have this behavior at the moment because it provides you with a protective mechanism. We just have to work out what is it you're trying to protect yourself from and can we find new behavior that can actually be a little bit more helpful and supportive to you. And, and, you know, it's never, ever about food or body image, ever. It's never about that. But, yeah, that's what people assume. And the other the other thing that people assume is that it's always a, you know, young girl, young teenage, white, young, white, teenage privileged illness. And it's not because actually the recent statistics have shown us that there's a massive rise in ethnic minorities who are suffering with eating disorders. And, in fact, they've had the biggest growth in terms of hospital admissions in this last 12 months and yet nobody talks about that and again that's really frustrating but also there's been in terms of the age the biggest rise has actually been in the age group of 30 to 40 year olds but it's so oh, wow. misunderstood eating disorders are so misunderstood they are you know they are thought of as everybody just sees them as emaciated images of people but eating disorders come in so many different shapes and sizes and different different types like, you know, when I did the documentary with, with Freddie Flintoff, like last year, you know, that was really clear that this was somebody nobody ever would have guessed had an eating disorder. And yet there he was with bulimia, still living it, still it being his protective mechanism, you know, because he had had so much bullying as a young player. And actually what he was protecting himself from was that, was the fact that he was felt judged and he felt shamed and he felt not worthy. But his new behavior protects him from that because it provides him the false sense of security. But but now I'm accepted, you know? And and that's the thing, like yeah. people always assume a certain type of person is, is, has an eating disorder, but it comes in so many different shapes and sizes. And, you know, it's definitely, like it's my mission at the moment, I'm part of a, the hearts, minds and genes eating disorder coalition um and we are now stakeholders providing information to the government and it is absolutely our mission to make eating disorders everybody's business but also to show people that they come in so many different we just want to make them all visible we want people to see that they are visible you know they are they're not just what you see in the papers potentially
1: and and tell us a little bit more about um Hearts, minds, um, and and genes. It would be great to, to, to know a little bit more um, about you know the plans for reforming the health and social care, and yeah, just know a bit more about the, the report. So we
2: we joined probably back in February. Um, I was actually invited to a roundtable discussion, um, which was run was actually chaired by Hope Virgo, who some people might know because she's done a lot of campaigning around dump the scales. Has been her last campaign around trying to get the government and GPs and health practitioners to realize that an eating disorder is not just about BMI and shouldn't be diagnosed (laughs) just on BMI. Um, And she invited me along to this round table. And um, I was asked to speak about, particularly around the area of eating disorders in sport and the exercise dependencies and, you know, particularly that. And after the meeting, um, I was then formally invited to join the steering group. And it's actually only been in the last two weeks that we've actually come up with this name of hearts minds and genes and the reason why it's hearts minds and genes is because we're a very small group but we're basically a group of scientists um, and lived experience and carer experience so we're made up of um geneticist myself as the kind of i suppose nutrition behavioral specialist area we have two psychiatrists um we've got an endocrinologist Um, got hope who is very much a campaigner and has her own lived experience and then we have a couple of members who are um they represent feast but they also represent just carers in general so feast being a a charity that is very very helpful to parents in particular that are suffering who are going through um caring for someone with an eating disorder so we come at it from a really Mm -hmm. different angle because previous eating disorder stakeholders have just been charities and we're coming at it from a really different angle because we've all got expertise in the area particularly um, mm. and so what we're trying to do is i mean it's going to take about 40 years i think but the aim is that we want a whole reformation of practice like at the moment the the practices that are being used are not working and they've never worked and they're the same practices that have been used 30 years ago and they've not been they've just not been um improved or or moved forwards and you know and and that's because like with anything there's no one size fits all you know you can't just fix an eating disorder with one type of therapy you have to have the whole package so my my kind of my take on it is and that we need to be much more collaborative with our approach because in my clinic that's what we do we we look at somebody physically and holistically we look at their history we look at where they are physically at the moment by looking at their bloods we listen to them, we hear their their story, and then we put together a package that works for them. And that might take three months, six months, a year, two years, depending on where they've come from. And, you know, that also means helping them restore physically. And what we mean by that is not just weight, which is what is often sort of used in this country, it's actually looking at them being physically repaired. So hormonally repaired again, so that their fertility levels are back to normal. You know, if they've got bone health issues and they're still in their twenties and thirties, it's providing them with support to improve that. Like that's what we do in our clinic. And, you know, we have really good outcome and we're basically trying to encourage practices to change in that way. But that means we need research and obviously research needs funding. So as a coalition, the aim is to kind of we have a number of different public awareness campaigns that we're hoping to launch over the next sort of um, few months. And hopefully people will get involved and, and get behind us. And I think they will because, you know, the people are realizing this is a problem. But, yeah, the idea is we're meeting with government bodies all the time. Like We had a meeting, I said, today. We've got we've called around table next week um, to ask MPs to come and listen to us about what our mission is and, and what we need and, and how we're going to try and um, encourage the government to, to look at it from our point of view. So it's a big, big task and um, people who know me will know I'm not scared of big tasks in any formal manner, but um, I'm very conscious that I have to be very realistic about my expectations because it is, one thing, having an aspiration and a vision of how you see things to be. But there's another thing when you're working with departments and individuals and red tape. Um, and and I think I'm starting to realize that. Like I'm in this is a very new area for me. Not once did I ever think I'd be involved in potential policy making and being a stakeholder in these conversations. And I'm very, very honored to be doing this job. But um, but it's it's definitely a massive learning curve for me as well. So um, yeah, very very excited. Um, and we have a brilliant coalition. Like the group is phenomenal and really supportive of each other. Um, but yeah, we've we know we've got a really tough road ahead of us. But hopefully, we'll we'll make some change. Even if we stop one person from dying of an eating disorder, I feel like we've we've done something right.
1: I mean, it's it's an incredible endeavor, and it's it's huge, as you say. It's you know like overturning kind of public health, and um, I mean, just the thought of what you just said—that people in twenty twenty one are dying of eating disorders—is that blows my mind. In you know, in in supposedly you know, in inverted commas, developed countries. I mean, it, yeah, it should never happen. It shouldn't, it's but pretty yet horrific. It yeah, it shouldn't,
2: but yet. You know, a person dies of an eating disorder every 60 minutes, pretty much, in the Western world. That's the reality of it. But nobody talks about that. You know, we talk about, again, like, I think this is this is one of the messages we're trying to get through to, to government as well, is that, you know, there's so much focus on obesity and the obesity strategy. And I have no problem with that because we know it's a problem. We have a crisis. There's no doubt about it. But the percentage growth in eating disorders has quadrupled in the last 12 months and that's partly you're like phenomenally mainly to do with the, with the pandemic and how people have coped with it but also the messaging that went out to be quite honest and, and the threat it created but but the thing we're trying to get them to understand is obesity is a problem because it costs our nhs a lot of money and that's what the the concern is well eating disorders also cost our nhs a lot of money because you know when you even if you're somebody who's functional so let's say you're not critical care and you're not early intervention but you're somebody who's maybe just functioning with an eating disorder day to day you're not so underweight that it's problematic but you're definitely not where you should be or your relationship with food is really dysfunctional and it's not normal but you just function these individuals will, will potentially have the health consequence that we've, we've, we've listed for reds you know they will have endocrine problems they'll have fertility problems they will have bone health problems they will have they will have um, depressive pro- like problems with their mental health because, again, 63% of people who have eating disorders have depression. You know, a lot of that is to do with hormonal imbalances. But yet nobody wants to hear that side of the argument because they just pigeonhole them into, oh, it's, it's, it's this. It's this problem with, a, you know, a diet gone wrong. And all we have to do is get them to eat better and it'll be fine. And that's just not what it is. They are mental illnesses with physical consequences, which are costing the NHS loads of money. And so this is what we're trying to get them to appreciate that we we're not sitting here saying you shouldn't do the things you're doing for obesity for the obesity strategy. We understand that, although the obesity strategy has many holes in it to be fair. Um, but we're also saying but you have this other endemic developing what are you going to do about it? And, you know, I appreciate I'm very passionate about this area because I work in it. But I'm very passionate about it because every day I see people suffering who should not be suffering. Every day I watch people cry in front of me. And when you live that every single day you want to change something. And that's why I'm so passionate. It's not, you know, it's not like I'm this <laughs> kind of martyr. It's because it should not be happening full stop.
1: Yeah, I mean I can't even imagine what that must be like having to deal with that every day and trying to cope with that. And I think I mean the the, the initiative that you guys are, are, are trying to put forward sounds amazing. And I, I wish you all the, the best of luck with it. I know it's going to be a huge challenge and and as you say it, when you're dealing with you know governmental bodies it's it it, everything takes about 10 times longer than it would if you're in a private clinic unfortunately but I think um kind of what you touched on earlier that you were saying that you know the image of it is sort of you know white privileged rich girl disease eating disorders um so is is part of the plan to kind of start reaching out to some of the more marginalized communities and, and 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 starting the conversation there as well a hundred percent. And
2: we've already like, you know, I did a, an event with uh, Marilyn Akuru last week because she's, you know, she's come out and, and talked about her dysfunctional relationship with food and, you know, the things she's been through, how she was encouraged to to look like her white, con- her white counterparts in terms of physical body image. And you're looking at her going, yeah, that's never going to happen, mate. Like, you know, but the things she put herself through and it's only now that she can talk about it but absolutely i mean you know i mean i guess i mean i never i'll be honest i never thought i'd end up in working in eating disorders because again i was a teenager who had an eating disorder and actually my eating disorder stemmed from numerous things one being being bullied and you know and 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 lots of racial discrimination you know i've it it, it is unfortunately it is the reality of my teenage life in that there was a lot of um there was a lot of problems back then so for me very early on I the narrative I created for myself was I was not good enough I was not accepted and I was never going to be accepted and so that was potentially the start of me needing to escape like not wanting to be around so for me generally my eating disorder was about becoming as small as and insignificant as I actually felt you know and 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 I, you know, to be fair, I am fully recovered. I mean, you know, nobody would even know because I am very very well, and I have no issues with food or exercise in any form or manner. But that part of me still lives on. That part of me that, you know, still sometimes feels the that negative narrative of you're not good enough. You need to do more because that also is part of it. Like that is my personality type. So yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I I've noticed that. Since I started my clinic up, and I suppose I I've never I don't talk about my experience of an agent sort disorder of very much because I don't I don't want people to think that's the reason why I do what I do. Like I'm so distanced from it. I do it because I fundamentally have got the experience of working in it as a professional. But what I've noticed in my clinic is that we're definitely getting much more, um, we're definitely getting more and more people from different backgrounds coming into clinic. And maybe that's because again, you need that role modeling. You know, it's like it's like what the guys are doing with the black trail running. It's that role modeling. You know, I, again, I get it. Like I'm usually the only Asian person, the only Indian person at any race. And it is weird, but it has become normalized because that's what I'm used to. So yeah, when I was at the event, the, the last race, the Ultra X race with Simba, it was brilliant. There was, like, such a mix. Like, I've never seen so much diversity. I was like, oh, my God, this is cool. But, yeah, 100%. Like, you know, although it's not, you know, it's not necessarily part of it. it I guess it's part of my vision for Train Brave is to, you know, I've got these two campaigns going on. But it's part of my vision for Train Brave to definitely, I want to see more equality in sport. I want to see more youngsters of all different backgrounds participating and not being about being really good at it but just enjoying it I want people to people who never have the experience of under even knowing what a trail is getting out there and understanding what a trail is like I I grew up in um a, above a shop in a council estate like you couldn't get more stereotypical of of my upbringing my dad worked at Heathrow like you know like bend it like Beckham film that was my life right that was pretty much it and like her like she was very much into football I was actually all about dance but I was not allowed to do it because it wasn't seen as academic enough and you know all those problems and I was really lucky I think because of maybe you know my parents are definitely a lot more liberal than most Indian parents and I was very fortunate that at uni and beyond uni and, you know, I started to meet individuals that and friends that basically took me out of my comfort zone. And I was very, very fortunate. I started to experience, you know, things that I didn't even know existed when I was a teenager, like trails, like ski resorts. I had no idea. I mean, that sounds pathetic when you say it, but I had no idea because my life was so contained and insular and it was about survival fundamentally like my childhood and adolescence was about survival I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and we were just comparing stories of childhood and he was telling me all these like really cool things that happened to him as a teenager and and you know he's he's a really good runner and he was talking about all his experiences and then he sort of looked and he asked me and I was like do you know what if I'm honest I don't think about my childhood very much because my childhood really was just about survival like it was it wasn't fun And it's not a place I want to particularly go back to because it wasn't fun. That said, life couldn't be further from that now. Like, I feel very, very fortunate. I am very accepted. I have an amazing group of friends that are, I don't know, they just see me as Rini because that's what you should see you as, right? That's, That's it. And they're really encouraging of me. And they are the ones that have encouraged me to get out on the trails and stuff. And I love it. And I would not be who I am today. You know, I went to Brecon at the weekend and... I was like, in my element, I was like, this is me. This is what makes me me, you know, running in these mountains. So, yeah, I think <sighs> I've got a lot of work to do. You can tell that I'm incredibly, like, passionate about all so many different things. But definitely the idea is to, like we said, we want eating disorders to be visible, which means all races, all genders, you know, all ages to be included in that and people to see that. and fundamentally I want to see more diversity on on the trails because it's such a wonderful experience and I just wish people would would get out there and do it and not be fearful of it because it doesn't matter like it doesn't matter if you can only run five minutes it's just such a wonderful experience to be outside
1: Wow, there are so many strings that I want to pull on in what what you've just said. Um, <laughs> I just need to order my thoughts. Um, I guess first of all, I just want to say that I'm 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 so sorry that that was your experience growing up, and I'm I'm really pleased to see that you're in a much better place now and and and, and much happier. But I mean, it's yeah. As you said, things things back then were pretty bad, but you know, people are still having those same those same experiences now. So. Yeah I'm just I'm 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 sorry that was your experience. Um and I'm I'm really happy for you that you found trail running as well that that clearly gives you so much joy. Um what what is it about trail running rather than because you said you used to dance so what, what how is it different what do you what do you get from the you know running running in the breckens? I I I'd love I really wish I could sum it up. I think it's just it gives me
2: energy it makes me feel alive. And it's almost like the power of mother earth, this sounds, this sounds very cosmic, but it's almost like the power of mother earth just fills every inch of me and makes me feel what a human should feel. You know, I think when I first started running it was the first time I felt significant. The first time I ever was like, oh wow, this is a feeling of freedom but also a real sense of something I could do and something that I, that made me just feel strong, you know, and and, and a lot of my friends will say to me, you're a really strong person. You've been through so much adversity. That's what's made you strong. And, And perhaps that's the case, but I think sometimes you want that physical sign of being strong. Like, yes, you can be mentally strong, but I think it's nice to feel physically strong and So I guess, I guess that's it. But I think the biggest, the biggest pull of running and trail running has been the community, because even though I said there needs to be more diversity from my experience, it's also been one of the most accepting communities I have ever been part of. And no matter what race I've turned up at, whether I'm the only person of color or not, I've always ended up making friends. I've always ended up having amazing conversations and people just being so receptive and accepting. And so for me, it's become my family. It's become my, it's definitely where I draw my, my energy from like most of like, I would say probably my closest friends are all runners and I've met them in all different wakes of life, like from different races or, um, you know, running clubs or or whatever. And, and that's amazing because it means I get to combine my favorite pastime with my favorite people. And it's sociable, too. And it's good for me. So I guess that's that's the closest I can do to summing it up. But, um, but
1: yeah, I mean, it's hard. <laughs> that was a good that was no, that was a very good summation. I enjoy. I like that. Um, I particularly like what you said when you said it was the first time that you, you felt significant. I mean, that's a really, really powerful statement and I think as you said it's it it is that feeling of being out whether you're in the mountains or you're you know on the trails or on the canal towpath wherever it may be that yeah it's that feeling of you know yes nature is very big and the world is very big around me but I can do this and I can do hard things I think there's a lot of a lot of strength that comes from that um and but, but kind of bearing that in mind you do you know you do ultra marathons you do tough races how physically you can prepare yourself and obviously from a nutrition perspective you know exactly what you're doing but uh, sometimes and I would say personally I would say it's more like 90% of the time it comes down to kind of your mental strategies Mm. and more than it does the physical um Because, you know, you can drag yourself around a course if you have to physically, but sometimes it's your brain that you need to kind of have a bit of a sterner word with. So how do you kind of survive these epic races that you do and get through those tough moments? To be honest, it
2: it sounds, you know, it does sound very um, kind of, uh, what's the word? It sounds very cheesy, but a lot of it is because I have, I just draw from the experiences I've had you know like if i'm in a tough moment i'll think about a situation that i was in as a teenager and how i got through it or i'll think about actually you know when my marriage fell apart and i had to go through potentially rebuilding not just myself but my business it, it, and it was painful and difficult but yet here i am survived and smiling and 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 you know no regrets that that happened because it needed to happen you know so i think mentally for me it's it's just about drawing from experiences and i think that's the thing isn't it is that when we're in these difficult experiences it can feel very much like why is this happening to me and i tend to turn that around when i'm going through something tough and go what am i going through this for because potentially it is setting me up for something else that i will need to to use it for and i think you know Every experience teaches you something. And, and that's what I think if we, again, it's what I try and tell people I work with is that you never fail at anything. You know, you shouldn't be fearful of taking that step or or jumping into that uncertainty or because you you never know, like it could be an amazing opportunity or yeah, maybe it doesn't work out, but what will you learn from that? And I think that's kind of what I take with me um, When I'm in these really tough races, particularly, you know, definitely found myself when I was trying to when we we're crossing the pass in in Manaslu, where you're up at like five thousand one hundred meters, and it's it's tough going, like it's literally one foot in front of the other, um, and you know, like a twenty kilometer stretch will take you nine hours because of the because of the the altitude. But it was very much just that absolute resilience, I suppose, that, well, I'll, of course I'll get through this. Well, I've got through other things. So of course I'll get through this. It means that
1: confidence of I can and I will because I know how to. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's something that our our, our listeners can really take away with them, um, that, you know, having kind of those hard experiences almost in your, you know, in your metaphorical cookie cookie jar and then when you're in these tough situations you can take the cookie out and say well I've you know I, I did this so I can I can I can I can finish whatever it is that I'm trying to trying to get through I guess um kind of leading on from that you said don't be f- afraid of failure don't 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 worry about failure, but think more about what it's going to teach you. Um, so I recently DNFed, would very recently <laughs> dnf a race, a um, hundred miler. And I think mostly it was because of nutritional issues. It was a very hot day and it got to a point where my stomach just said, nah, this isn't happening. Um, and yeah, that was the, that was the end of my day. So I have been running, trail running for quite a number of years. And clearly I'm very much still making mistakes. <laughs> So you recently did your 50K Ultra X trail race. I think it would be great to to know kind of what you do in the lead up. What, and, what, and also, what do you eat during a race? Like, what? well, clearly we know. Was it chocolate or peanut m ms that you were trying to feed? Peanut m <laughs> So, yeah,
2: I mean, I guess um, – I mean, I do what everybody else does into a, so it's what I practice. I practice what I preach to a certain degree that when I know I've got a race, so ultra X races are actually usually quite good because they are usually on a Saturday, which is, which is quite nice. Um, and so usually I start thinking about it probably on Wednesday in in terms of knowing that I want to make sure I've got good carb glycogen stores. And so I'll just, I won't, I don't necessarily increase what I eat, but I just change the composition of my diet a little bit. So I'll, I start to maybe not have quite so much fruit and veg perhaps and have a little bit extra pasta or rice or potatoes or like, you know, crumpets. Hot cross buns are a big favorite. Um, or I might even just use if I'm working a lot, then I'll try and use drinks to get energy in just to make sure that I've got that carbs. You know, I think people don't appreciate just how much carbohydrate you actually need. And, and it takes quite a long time. To, to build your glycogen stores up. Like you don't just eat a meal and you've got four glycogen stores. It's like 500 grams worth of carbohydrate, which is quite a lot. So um, so I guess I tend to do that sort of, usually I find myself doing that Wednesday, Thursday, and then Friday, I just like to go back to kind of normal eating and just not overdo it because I sort of find that it helps my digestive system better. And I'll always have my main meal at lunchtime rather than in the evening. Um, and mm-hmm. in the evening, I'll probably just have I don't know, probably like a bagel or something, just something quite simple. that I've had like main meal and I'm probably a little another little mini snack before I go to bed. But that's kind of it. Um, race morning is always a bagel. It always, always is, probably always will be. It's just how I am. And it works for me, um, usually with peanut butter and one one half of peanut butter and one half with Marmite. And that's just what I do. Um, and then what I tend to use. And this has taken years and and so and it has really worked for me for the last kind of. I'd say last two or three years of, of racing, this, this has worked for me. I mean, I, potentially it could go wrong at some point, but for now it works for me is that I do tend to get most of my carbohydrate from drinks. I prefer to drink than to eat. But remember, I don't do a hundred mile events events. Like I'm not out there, you know, I'm usually out there. The longest I'll probably be out there is like seven hours or eight hours or something. So I can kind of do that. I think when you're out there for 10 hours plus you probably need some more solid type food but so I get majority of my energy from um, sports drinks personally I like to use active root because I like the ginger and I tend to concentrate it up and I've I've put this all out on Instagram before so I'm not worried about you know talking about it at all Um, and I tend to concentrate it up so that it's double concentration in terms of then I know that every sip I take is is going to give me a good amount of carbohydrates so that tends okay. to be the base of my nutrition. And then I will always top up with peanut M&Ms often. That's a very awesome. common, that will always be like, I, I'll buy the M&Ms and um, my, uh, my, uh, the local co-op is like, um, are you racing? Cause they all know that I, I, mean, I live in somewhere that's really tiny. Everyone knows I run that you racing again. I'm like, yep. So is that kind of, you know, so, um, so I get, yeah, peanut M&Ms um, often also, what else do I usually have? Um, I quite like, uh, I people don't understand it, but I quite like oat cakes. Um, so I'll often have oat cakes, particularly okay. seeded ones, just because they then give that bit of saltiness that, you know, like it can get quite a lot of sickly, sweet stuff. So I often have oat cakes. Um, if I've got crew or people on the course, I'll get them to carry things like hot cross buns for me. So I might have those or like- Oh, nice. Yeah. Or a bit more bagel with with uh, Marmite, something like that. You know, if I really need a, a boost and then a Snickers bar never goes amiss, to be quite honest. So, I mean, people might look at that and go, oh, my God. But that is what I do and it works for me. And yeah, it, it you know, it's so far
1: so good, I'd say. And do you have something, so is it the Snickers bar kind of, do you have something that you like really look forward to eating? Like, you know that you've got it in your pack and you're like, oh, I yeah. can't wait to eat that. Yeah. That's the Snickers bar. <laughs> That's like, I'm like, okay, usually last checkpoint. Come on, let's do this. <laughs> so... <laughs> But so, yeah. I did you know I think I think it's a really powerful motivator because you know depending on how long your race is obviously there's the idea of splitting it up into chunks. And sometimes I think having food is those motivators for those chunks. So okay, the end of this section I get to eat this and then I get to have my peanut M M's and then it's kind of like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just encourages yeah. you to take take that next step. <laughs> yeah,
2: totally. And, and I when I I don't get me wrong, I'll also I will use I will always carry gels with me because you know, I have no there are times when blood sugars have really just dropped and I know the only thing is going to work is going to be a gel because I need that instant fix so I always carry spare gels with me as well um but they're not things I rely on particularly they're just things I have in case um but yeah and then obviously when you finish it's pizza and beer really generally
1: (laughs) yeah that's 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 a definite that's a definite favorite so yeah Yeah. we we can hang out after races really
2: yeah
1: (laughs) I actually went out running last night
2: with uh two of my mates and um because it was obviously it was summer solstice and we were like let's go and run up a hill somewhere to celebrate and then let's go to the pub afterwards and it was brilliant we did this like I don't know 13 14k loop and then ended up in the pub with yeah pint of ale and uh chips it's perfect. <laughs> my, perfect my friend was, was like <laughs> oh. my friend was like are you gonna go home and eat anything else or is that it for you and I'm like well I might go home and have some Tony's and then go to bed <laughs> and then he was just looking at me going and you're a dietitian I'm like I know but you know what
1: can you do <laughs> <laughs> love that love that so I'm, I don't want to keep you for much longer, really, because I know you're very busy. I mean, I, my mind kind of boggles at how you find the time to do everything that you're doing, because, yeah, you you must just not sleep. I'm guessing that's how it, how it works. You just don't sleep. And that's how you manage to do all of these things. Um, but I did just want to ask for some of your advice, because obviously you've, you've set up this coalition and um, you're very passionate about the idea of diversity it would be great to know what you what your thoughts are in terms of what we can do as as black trail runners to promote our aim which is to increase the inclusion participation and representation of black people and people of color in trail running I mean what what advice would you give us from 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 someone who is not only a trail runner but does all the things
2: I I think what you're doing is amazing Um, and I think all we can do and I I include myself in this because I you know I actually joined the Black Trail Runners today because I saw your little post so joined you guys as well Um, but um, all we can do is it's that it's that visibility keep talking about it keep pushing it make it visible And, and actually my my What I'd say to you is, what can I do to help you? Because, you know, what you've created is incredible. And, you know, that for me, if I had been, I mean, it's different now, but like thinking about a 16 year old Rini, if she had seen a group of five, six people doing of of color, doing the Ramsey round and, and hearing about it, she would have gone fuck me. I want to do that. Right. And I think that's it. It's like the same thing we're talking about with eating disorders and people needing role models to come and talk up. That's what you guys are doing so well. You are, you are role models and you are, you're getting out there and you're making noise. And that is what I would say. And, and talking, you know, I know you guys have got a really good relationship with ultra X and they're a brilliant, brilliant brand to, to work with. And I mean, I, you know, I've got a lot of time and respect for, for Jamie and Sam, because they're doing such great work, not just on, on this in terms of diversity, but also on the sustainability aspect. And they just thought of everything. And I think I love that about them and the brand. And I wonder if there's more brands that you can reach out to and, and have those same conversations. Cause I think the more brands that, that do what Ultra X are doing and really encouraging that participation. And that's what it is. I think like, you know, I've been in the sports world for a long time. I've worked with ultra runners for a long time. I know a lot of people in the industry, but I still feel sometimes there are some organizations and some race directors that want to create more of an elitist race, more of an extreme race, which puts people off. And And I think that's where, where Ultra X is so good. And I'm not saying that because you know, I, I, I'm their nutrition lead. I'm saying that because genuinely I wouldn't put my name to something if I didn't believe in it. And so mm-hmm. I just think that's what needs to be carried on doing is talking to race directors, making it part of, you know, just making it, and also the other thing, and this kind of fits with both what we're, we're all trying to do. And this is where I feel I could maybe kind of help is that runners don't come in one shape or size. You know, let's promote diversity in terms of you can be a good runner, whatever color you are, whatever size you are, whatever shape your body is, because we've all unique and we've all got different things. And actually, running is not about being the fastest. Running is about what I said earlier. It's about feeling significant. It's about being visible. It's about feeling that strength that you mean something that you you belong to something and we know again that you know one of the things to support people with mental health is giving them a sense of belonging is giving them a sense of purpose and I wonder if that that's it like you know we saw the whole skid row marathon film a few years ago which took people from very you know social economic and less privileged backgrounds and got them into running and it changed them it changed them and their lives like it wasn't about being the fastest it was just about a sense of belonging and a sense of purpose and i think that's what we should be doing and i think that's what you guys are doing but we we can all raise our voices and do more of it and like i said it's actually the question for me is what can i do to help you guys because that's what's more important think you know what you're doing is phenomenal and I just, I'm, I'm already seeing change. So the fact is that we're already seeing change, which is really, really cool. And we just need to stop sport being so elitist and encourage people to get out there and do whatever it is they can, whether it's, you know, literally a 20 minute jog once a week, but with a group of people that make them laugh and smile. Do you know what? Cool. Just do that. And, and that's, that. that I think that's my vision, like for sport, that would be my vision. That's my vision for Train Brage is that sport should be about participation not
1: about elitism i mean amen to all of that amen to all everything that you've just said um yeah i think that there is definitely that 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 aspect of trail running and racing sometimes that people feel that they have to be you know oh i'm not fast enough i can't you know i I shouldn't do it because i'm not going to be breaking the tape but i mean in reality you know Very few of us are going to be breaking the tape at any races, but it's just about getting out there and enjoying it and meeting like-minded people and moving your body. Um, Yeah, I mean, I can't, I I don't think I can add anything to what you've already said. um, I completely, completely agree with what you've said. And what's your next challenge? What's your next race?
2: Well... I don't know. Well, I, I've I've signed up to do another Ultra X race just because I mean I do love their events and and the terrain that they tend to, um, they choose really suit what I like. So I've signed up to do um, the Peak District again, just uh, just the Sunday, just the fifty k, which is in September. Just, I was just the fifty k. <laughs> I was planning on trying to do something this summer, but if I'm honest with all the work and everything else I've got going on, it's just not realistic. So I'm quite good at kind of going, do you know what? I don't need that pressure right now. I just want to go out and enjoy my running and not worry about that. So so I've got that in September. Um, if UTMB goes ahead, then um, I'll be going out and supporting Damien, which I know isn't. An, he's another big fan of the Black Trail Runners. So I'll be going out to support him. Um Fantastic which will be great because it'd be nice to get back out to Chamonix after two years of not being able to do anything out there. Um, But no, I don't have any major plans at the moment. I think I'm quite content with just, I'm really enjoying running with my friends again, like obviously the pandemic meant that we were so isolated for so long. I'm just so grateful to be able to see my friends, run with my friends and have a laugh. And, And that's all I really want right now. So no major challenges but obviously once Mustang is back on the agenda then that will be my next big goal I think
1: fantastic well just running and enjoying it with your friends sounds like a, a pretty good plan to me and um just following on from your question of what you know what you can do to help BTR I mean first of all thank you so much for coming on on the checkpoint I know that so much of what you said i think people can can take away with them and and use practically and also just as you said you know raising awareness and making people aware of all these things that perhaps you know they they might be going through or they know someone who's going through them and I, I think yeah just being aware of it is is huge and knowing that you're not alone that it is something that a lot of people are experiencing i think is huge um and yeah I mean ho- you know hopefully we can collaborate on something be it an event or you know virtual or in person or whatever it may be but yes it, we we would we would love to 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 have you on board and we will we will pick your brain and, and use you as much as you're willing to let us oh I'd love that definitely um, definitely up for a collaboration of some
2: description whatever it might be that you need me for definitely up for like I said this support already you know did support the guys over like in terms of them nutrition advice the ramsey, ramsey round yes
1: which yeah the ramsey round which um I, I know that they were so appreciative of and there was that yeah there was a lot there was there was a lot of um there are a lot of positive comments after your after I, I know you did talk with them and there was there was a lot of kind of i think you'd opened a lot of minds um and clearly they got through it and i'm sure i'm sure that a lot was to do with your your help in terms of nutrition um where can people find you online? Where, where What's the best place for people to connect with you and find out more about you and what you're doing? And I mean, all the things that you're doing because you're just doing so much, really. I don't even know how you do it all.
2: Well, yeah, even I don't half the time, to be honest. Um, so, I mean, we try and update the website regularly, particularly within terms of the coalition and what we're doing with the coalition. So that's just Um But I suppose the best place to actually find me is Instagram because it still is the platform that people tend to search me on and it's just r underscore mcgregor and you know my platform is it's very very work and education related but occasionally you might get a picture of me running but mostly it's um it is about what to do how to participate how to be the best version of yourself physically um so hopefully people will find that really helpful as well but i'm always you know i do i get a lot of questions but i try to answer every single one i try to answer every single dm so um And if I don't, then actually somebody on my team will pick it up and and send it to me, particularly if it's something that's important. So, you know, you'll always get something back from me.
1: Wow, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much for that, really. And yeah, I can I can confirm um, I follow I follow you personally, and Black Show Runners follow you, and it's a, yeah, so much information on your Instagram feed. So I would urge everyone to go there and check it out, and we'll put all that information in the show notes. Um, so just want to say a massive thank you again for for taking the time out of your crazy schedule to talk with us today and yeah keep doing what you're doing because it's amazing and anything that we can do in terms of you know any of the projects that you're working on you know train brave or hearts minds and genes or you know anything then please do reach out because yeah we'd love to be involved thank you so much i think it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you this evening so thank you so
2: much and yeah i'm sure there'll be many more conversations between us all so um it's exciting It's it's a really exciting opportunity so it's all good
0: Thank you for joining us at The Checkpoint.
2: If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe and share online.
0: Also, please remember to leave your review on the podcast platform that you selected, as it really helps our podcast to grow.
2: Your support helps make this podcast possible.
0: Remember, if you have any questions, get in touch with us via our Instagram page, at Black Trail Runners, or... If you want to join our community, please search Facebook for Black Trail Runners and connect with us.